Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, and this is episode 109. And yes, there has been a big gap between the last time I podcasted before I went to Alaska and went did my Alaska Man race, and now back to the end of July. So first of all, thank you all for being patient with me and continuing to tune in and download and listen to this podcast despite, <clears throat> excuse me, a four-week break. And many of you know that I don't do much of a production about this podcast. I just sort of answer emails and questions and talk about topics that are pertinent to the ultra-endurance lifestyle, the training, the nutrition, the mindset, and so forth, how we choose events and how we can mainly fit it into our daily lives. And so for the last four weeks, um, I took a break, and that is not from training or from work, but more from the podcast because I was busy traveling and on vacation with family, and then also, of course, at Alaska Man. So that will happen. I don't bank podcasts. I don't have podcasts saved that I can just put out there while I'm not available on during the week or on Fridays to record a podcast. So unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you see it, this is a little small operation and I try to just do my best on delivering content on a podcast when I can. It's very similar with the newsletter and uh, the newsletter is actually almost ready and going out this next week. I'm pretty much written out, but um, the podcast, it took me a little bit to get caught up on work and rhythm as well as a variety of good email questions I've received since. So this week, we're going to talk about the Alaska Man Race. And as many of you know about me, or those of you that actually do know me, um, I don't like to go into a lot of hoopla or talk about races, but I do like to go into the adventure of it all and what Alaska Man was and how well it was organized and what it was about. And then therefore, you can make your own decisions if you might want to take on an extreme triathlon and go about the adventure of that was what was Alaska and Alaska man. I'm not sure that was proper English that I just spoke. So yeah, and then I have a good a dose of 10 or 15 emails with really good questions that require a longer answer. They're not just sort of quick hit ones. They talk from anything about VO2 max and lung capacity to a type of training and so forth. And then I've also received some feedback that people are really waiting for that 70.3 training plan, which I doubt I will get to on this podcast, but I surely will get to starting on the next one because it is important and it is something that I promised that I would deliver on. So again, thank you for tuning in. I'm not sure if tuning in is the right word in the podcast world anymore, but yeah, I'm going to dive into Alaska Man a little bit. My thoughts and my reflections from that, what I learned and what um, we can all take from it. And then I will also dive into some bigger topics that came from about 15, 20 emails I've received um, in, since the last podcast. So also, so you know, when you send me an email, I sort of review it and quickly put it, not quickly, but I categorize it and put it into an email folder with episode questions for the podcast. And from there, I let it sit until I bring it up here on the podcast. 
Um, sometimes you send me questions that you say you would like a quick answer to, and I try to do my best to get back to you on those. But others, it looks like it's just a podcast question, and it it's not anything urgent um, to respond to immediately. So, yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you for bearing with me these last four weeks. I've heard from a few of you wondering if they've missed episodes or their upload of the podcast isn't working. No. It's been a gap, and I'm excited to be back. I spent some time in Alaska, about 10 days up there, post-race and traveling and checking it out, and I'd never really been to Alaska, and it was one of my best friends who was my support crew and I was there with, and then I was home for about a week, and then Emily and I went to um, Jackson, um, Wyoming, actually just outside of Jackson. We love Victor and Driggs, Idaho one valley over in the Teton Valley and did a bunch of trail running and cycling up there and enjoyed um, about 10 days without kids and on vacation there. So yeah, without much more said, let's dive right into this episode. Alrighty, so Alaska man, (laughs) what a great event, what a great week, what a great time, what a great experience. And That's truly what it was. Alaska Man, to me, was an experience. It was taking an event that I'm very familiar with, with 40 or so Ironmans under my belt, and how many half Ironmans and years of doing that sport on a very focused and prepped, not as much focus, I shouldn't say, but in a very prepped way, and always biking with a short run or, you know, swim uh, run, and just having a very um, mapped out, focused approach to how I train and race Ironman. And taking that and putting that concept and those concepts of um, racing into a completely different environment. One, I love point-to-point races. Um, so Alaska Man was appealing for that. And most X-Tries are um, many, and I wouldn't say most, many X-Tries are like that and that they're point-to-point, like Norsemen and a variety of others. So I think that's cool anyway. That's what I love about Ultraman, too, is, you know, circumnavigating an island, like in the case of Hawaii or what we're doing in Qatar, circumnavigating um, a country where you get back to the starting point. I mean, just unique. So point-to-point was great. Then the location and the scenery and the the, the visual effects of that Alaska Man were fantastic. Um, and that it was back sort of to the grassroots of Ironman distance long course triathlon. I mean, it was a small event as well as um, just no aid stations, you know, and even the aid stations that they did have on the run because they had two or, um, or maybe three for what my watch said was 29 miles, but I think everybody had 28, um, is, you know, it just brings you back to what triathlon, the true roots, and just having a support team member, and what that all means, and just having fun out there, and figuring it out, and what it's all about, right? I mean, running with things, I mean, cycling and running with your phone, in order to be reachable in case of an emergency. Talk about the roots of triathlon and, and, and early days where they didn't even have cell phones, of course, but 
still you have to be reachable or you're just off the grid um, and no aid, right? Not even aid for the first 30 miles on the bike and the last 30 miles on the bike. So if you get a flat there or if something mechanical happens or you are having issues, you got to figure it out. You got to hitchhike or something like that. Because in a lot of the areas on the bike course, there was no cell coverage, which I thought it was funny because then why carry a cell phone? Um, and riding with bear spray and running with bear spray and running with all your own food and gear, right? Um, with a vest and carrying all the stuff. And, you know, just the logistics are different. They're way less um, um, going through the motions of having done so many Ironmans. I can wake up tomorrow and just quickly in my head put a few things together and be ready um, logistics-wise, food and hydration and overall just thought process and transitions for an Ironman. This was a different process. It was just something new. Not completely new because I still know the distances and the, how it felt and what, what, what the day will bring, but more about it just had enough of an edge to it where it's like, hey, this is an adventure. So that part was really fantastic. Um, you know, the the overall event um, and how it was organized was also done pretty well. Again, I don't have comparisons. All I have is the MDOT um, aspect. And so, of course, those can be replicated anywhere in the world. So going through this um, and having a different concept. Yeah, I've done a challenge before. Sorry. Um, that is another example. But again, it's very organized. Very, the logistics are just dialed. And um, in this case, no. You know, our, our pre-athlete, uh, pre-race meeting, our mandatory pre-race meeting was just on a grass field in the town of Seward, just sort of a guy standing there and talking. And um, we had a wildlife expert there to show us how to use our bear spray. And of course, in case you come across bears and moose and any type of wildlife and so forth. I and mean, just, again, on a different level and a different experience. And that was a lot of fun. And overall... I mean, Alaska and Seward and Alieska and Girdwood, phenomenal. I mean, just beautiful. Um, I was saying to somebody this morning, of course, I go to an event and my crew member, um, Taylor, we always laugh because I do events. I go to Coeur d'Alene, it's record heat, 105 temperature um, degrees. They almost cancel out because it's too hot. Um, I obviously do Hawaii many years. I was in Whistler last year, of course, record heat, 98, 100 degrees. Um, you know, nobody has air conditioning, brutal. Um, and of course, I go to Alaska and record heat. It's 85 to 90 degrees in Girdwood. Um, you know, the water temperature isn't as cold. It's hot. Um, smoke from a lot of fires uh, or one big, really big fires. And I'll throw some pictures up on the newsletter so that people get a chance to see um, what, the, what it looked like because it was pretty gnarly. I mean, there was a lot of smoke out there. And a lot of people have asked me if I felt anything. I did not. Um, it was not an issue in that respect for me. Now, will I in 10 years have a smoker's lung? Don't know that. But that being said, it did not. It was not a factor or noticeable on event day. But yeah, it was, it was hot. It was a different experience on that perspective um, for the others. For me, I'm like, all right, this is just a usual summer iron distance event. It's hot. It's miserable. You got to get in your fluids and some sodium and, you know, make sure your electrolytes are on, uh, on top of you're on top of your electrolytes. You also have to change your food a little bit with regards to GI issues in, when it's that hot. Um, so 
just usual stuff there. But overall, great experience, great fun, great insights, um, experience and adventure of doing something different, um, great format and that you have to have a crew member. So you have somebody taking part in the event with you. You're running with them. They're your support on the bike between mile 30 and 85. And so they're handing you stuff or you're stopping and you're grabbing stuff from them. Um, I had a mechanical on my bike. And so we tried to work through some stuff. Um, couldn't be fixed, but we, we, we worked on it. And so having someone else out there and sort of not following you, but sort of um, jumping ahead in spots to meet them, you know, that means somebody else is taking part in the event with you, which was a lot of fun. Um, different than Attilo, not um, having to race with them. And so being able to race your own event uh, and, and speed and effort levels, but it's still nice to have somebody out there. So overall, I would recommend Alaska Man. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, so the race and the event itself. So the Alaska Man swim, I had been worried about this swim for quite some time. And worried is relative. It's not like I get too worked up about it, but it was definitely a focus of knowing that if I get too cold, um, the day and the rest of the race experience would be severely compromised. And the interesting thing about this swim is that in past history, the event, two years of the event so far, the reviews and the input and the commentary and the race directors and the participants all said it was quite cold and that they wore special wetsuits and neoprene caps and booties and gloves, um, gloves, you know, the neoprene um, hand covers almost, uh, not almost, sort of. Because I say hand covers, it, it's not like they're paddles. It's more that they just cover your hands so that you can swim with somewhat of a normal freestyle stroke in very cold water. And so I've been monitoring the temperature of Resurrection Bay for a few weeks um, and also paying attention to that I could possibly get into some cold water prior. The bay in San Francisco is so ideal for that because it does fluctuate around 52 to 56 degrees in the spring. So I had a few opportunities to test out the waters in that. And I will say, and I know I'm sponsored by Roca, but I will say that the Roca Thermal Wetsuit <laughs> really made a remarkable distance, a difference, um, not only in the race, but also in the prep. I kept coming out of the water at Aquatic Park and in the bay, um, wondering um, if the water is actually as cold as the temperatures say online, because I never felt cold. And I wasn't wearing a neoprene cap or any booties in the bay. And so I knew it was going to be colder there. And I do have experiences in the past of having done Escape from Alcatraz where the temperatures have been, due to a snow melt and a bad year, 48 to 50, 52 degrees. And so brutally cold and without a thermal wetsuit at that time, because I'm not sure if they even existed about 10 years ago. And I remember jumping off that boat from Escape from Alcatraz and your face just freezing, like you have shortness of breath, you don't feel like you can put your face in properly, you have a hard time opening and closing your jaw, because it's so frozen and tight, not frozen, but it's tight, your hands start tingling, and you don't really have a feel for the water. So therefore, you're almost swimming with like stubs at the end of your wrists. 
and your feet, of course, on the tail end of your body, your extremity back there. Um, and you say back there because when you're swimming, your feet feel far away from you when they're that cold. And my feet, I remember being so cold and so numb, right? And you have a hard time in Escape from Alcatraz. And similarly with Alaska Man, that when you get out of the water, you have to run and escape about a mile, mile and a half to T1. So it's almost a second transition area where you put on some shoes or many choose to run barefoot, which I usually did. And so the next thing you know, um, you, you're not even able to run because you can't feel your feet. And so that was all part of my, in the back of my head when I was going into Alaska, man. Those temperatures, will I be able to swim that long of a time in those cold temperatures? Escape from Alcatraz is a 1.5 mile swim. Usually with currents, I can do it in under 30 minutes pretty quickly, 27, 28 minutes. And, you know, so that exposure to the cold while extreme um, and non-thermal wetsuit, um, is so much shorter than what I was thinking would be, you know, an hour long swim based off of the past numbers and results of the swims. The swim is about an hour. Well, they've changed the race date and that it's a month later than usual this year. And they shorten the swim course so that you don't swim through a waterfall of melting snow and so forth. And so that made a dramatic difference on the overall swim effect. Now you're only exposed, or I'm only exposed for about 45 minutes, which takes on a different mindset that you're going to be in that cold of water for about 45 minutes, as well as a month later, that means that water has had a chance to warm up a little bit in the bay. Um, I think that was a big factor. And again, they shorten the course so you don't swim through that freezing waterfall at about 45 minutes in whereby you then still have another 45 minutes to have to swim beyond that. Uh, you have another 15 minutes to swim beyond that because the waterfall is at about 45 minutes. So it becomes this um, dynamic that things really had changed quite a bit. And so we still had to deal with the water temperature itself. So there's the practice swim the day before, and I was planning to take part in that um, just to get a sense for the water, to get an idea at that time of day. Remember Alaska, the, the day is longer, light sun comes up probably around 2.45, 3, and is up until like 11.30, uh, 12. So civil twilight and civil sunrise is, um, is quite dramatically close. And so I plan to go to the practice swim and then use that day to get my final gear if I need anything. But because they charged... And not this is no no knock on the race director, but they had to charge um, insurance, and you're in an open water situation, and it's done by the event, so you had to buy a one day USAT pass unless you had an annual pass. And I don't do enough triathlons to have more than a one day pass for the event. I don't have an annual, um, or I didn't buy an annual this year, and so I wasn't going to pay twenty five bucks to do this. 15 20 minute practice swim so instead i went down to the swim start miller's landing and had a look around um but also seeing the people go in and out of the water it looked pretty cold they were looked pretty miserable so it stayed in my mind it stayed with me like okay i really got to get ready for a miserable swim 45 minutes of being truly cold um, the race director um, had in the pre-race meeting had said we need booties because you need to walk out on the rocks and 
um, in order to sort of tread water for a moment before the swim start. It's an in-water start. And so my buddy and I, we found some, you know, booties at the Ace Hardware store, nothing too crazy, more for fly fishermen to wear under their um, gaiters to stay warm. But again, I was just looking to do this with as minimal headache as possible. Well, to my surprise, <laughs> race morning, 3.30, we're down at Miller's Landing, having some coffee, people sitting around, um, getting ready for the swim. You know, I'm wondering how cold this is going to be, but also getting prepared for it. It's going to be cold. And sure enough, I get in the water and nothing. Um, I'm wearing the booties. It's a little cold, but nothing dramatic, nothing more than you would feel at any um, beach in the winter. Like, oh, that water's cold, but you don't necessarily freak out. And I, you know, I avoided getting in and too early and treading water and wading out in the cold water. But as soon as I did, I was fine. I was so surprised about that. And then the gun went off and I was waiting for my face to get that cold sensation or that shortness of breath, but that never came. I did wear a thermal cap and then a swim, the, the race swim cap over it. And then those booties, but nothing on the hands. I was never cold. There was never a cold moment in the swim. And actually in the middle of the swim, sort of halfway through this 3000 meter swim, I was uh, surprised that I was actually worried I was overheating a bit. I was that comfortable. I was that warm. My hands never got cold despite being, you know, bare in the water. No issue. So for those of you wondering about Alaska Man and the swim, I would not worry about it too much. I will say that, again, that Roka wetsuit, I talked to them, um, and they had mentioned that based off of their research and their the technology, they think that it adds about four to five degrees to water temperature. So if it's 52 degree water temperature, they say it feels like 57, 58. So, excuse me, five, six degrees. Um, and that makes a big difference. So it definitely did not feel like it was 52. And that's what it said on the website and the race website and the local buoy finders and so forth that the water was 52 degrees. And I did feel the waterfall as we got closer to the finish and you can feel it and hear it in the water because it's so loud and splashing so hard. But this year you get out prior to it. So you never hit that you know, 43, 44 degree water that's coming down the mountain where all the snow melt is. Now you definitely swim into a little bit of a cloud of it and it gets colder and you're like, whoa. And I can see how this race is completely different when you have to swim through that 44, 45, 46 degree water. That could be dramatic and that you're so chilled from that on the other side that the remaining 10 minutes of swimming are pretty hard. But and that was not the case. And so therefore, the swim went pretty smooth. Now, you all have heard that I talked about the fires um, up there. And the fires are pretty dramatic. Um, and the air was quite um, thick and smoky. And I put some pictures on the newsletter um, this month. And uh, so you can see how, how significant it was. But overall, that made also the wind very still despite it being technically an open water ocean swim because Resurrection Bay is connected to the ocean. And the water was flat. So we started at 4.30 in the morning. It's light out. 
Um, there's a haze of smoke right above the water. There's a big strobe white blinking light that you can see the swim finish that you can sort of sight to, just like Attilo races and open water swims for over larger distances. Very well done. You could swim, see that light the entire way because there weren't a lot of kayakers or a lot of boats. A, it's a small race. B, it's sort of grassroots. C, <laughs> it, uh, you know, it's just not that many people. And so there's not many volunteers out there in boats as well as uh, kayaks. Again, there's smoke and fire, so that might have limited the numbers as well. But yeah, so very well done. But in that respect, it was like a swimming pool. It was so flat and so smooth and not a ripple on the water. So you could just wind up the effort, swim, light head lift, could see the strobe, swim perfectly straight and go towards the T1 area, T1 beach. Um, never got cold, felt great on the swim and got out and saw my buddy right away. And then you run about a kilometer, you know, half a mile to the um, uh, bike transition area. And then off we went on the bike. And the bike wasn't that complicated. You know, it's a point to point, which makes it a lot of fun. And, you know, beautiful, beautiful bike. Now the views were restricted due to the um, fires and the smoke and the haze, but temperature-wise, it was perfect. Location-wise, it's beautiful. The roads are great. Not perfectly smooth, brand new asphalt, but plenty good. You never feel busy. The roads were nice and empty because, you know, again, it's 4.30 in the morning. I got out of the water in 42 minutes, let's say transition. So 5.15 in the morning on a Saturday in Seward, Alaska, roads empty. And the climbs and the location and the lakes and the mountains that you could barely see the tops for because of the haze, but you still got the effect and the drama and the beauty and the wilderness and the emptiness and the amount of space was just as you guys have heard probably uh, as or not as if you might have heard but I was talking about earlier is that I also um, had mechanical issues on the bike not because of gearing or anything but because of my um, aero cup um, holder the metal holder where the cushioning of the cup of the TT bars sits broke now you know it's not something I could have checked prior because I do check over my bike pretty closely before events and make sure everything's somewhat in working order. I mean, you can't avoid anything, but you can avoid certain things where it's like, all right, put a new tire on there or make sure everything's or brakes aren't rubbing and gears are working properly and everything's lubed and smooth and nothing's going to break. Well, you know, this was corroded on the inside in the screw in the bolt and it broke. And so as you can imagine on um, cups and TT bar cups, when they break, the one side just clips and falls down. Um, I was lucky it didn't fall away and break off and disappear completely. It's just the, the screw that keeps it on the arrow bar extension going forward. The cup is attached to that arrow bar extension and that screw corroded, broke. And so now it could no longer stay on the arrow bar um, from staying up or falling down onto the crossbar, onto the TT bar. So that one fell about four inches or three inches down to the side. And so if I put my arrow bar, my, myself in the arrow bars, my right arm will be in the cup and the left arm would basically be on the, the crossbar. And so that left me very crooked on my biking. And so that also meant 
that I wasn't able to ride in the TT position any significant time. And not because I couldn't maybe force myself through it, but also because A, I still have a run of 28 miles ahead of me, and B, because it put a lot of strain on my lower back because now I'm crooked. My front of my body is crooked. My hips, therefore, are getting strained differently. And so riding on a rolling course and pushing some um, decent wattages made it um, almost impossible to stay in the aero position. I was able to force myself to stay in it on some of the descents because I'm not pushing any watts. I was just coasting. But pushing any type of effort while in the cups, um, on any straightaway or up, it just hurt my lower back. And so most of that bike ride, this happened at mile 30, 33. Um, so the remaining 100 and no, the remaining 80-ish miles, I was not aero, not able to be aero. And, you know, as you guys can imagine on a straightaway course like that, point to point with not a lot of turns, it got quite, um, um, it got to be quite a pain in the you know what, because you know, that's a huge time savings when you can go aero. Um, and it makes a big difference, 40% less drag, I think it is, 30%, let's say. And um, yeah, so put me at a disadvantage. Um, I definitely got caught on the bike pretty quickly and was not able to keep up. Um, I would say I was in second place by mile 35. I was in third place by mile 60, 55, and I just sort of stayed there. Um, and luckily could just stay riding, sitting up, but in that positioning. Um, saw no wildlife on the bike, zero, none, <laughs> despite having to carry bear spray the entire way, despite having to carry a cell phone the entire way, and your fuel and your food. Well, you have support and crew, so therefore they pull off on the side of the road, you pull off to them. There's nothing they could do to help me with my bike, and but you can get a bottle and you can get food there, so you don't have to carry it on you as much. But there's definitely bigger stretches where no crew was allowed, like the first 30 miles. And the last... 25 miles and so in between that you can get some food and bottles but you also have to carry the bear spray the entire time and carried bear spray for five and a half hours not a not a lick of a bear not even bear scat not even bear smell not even bear anything so sort of annoying for that but you know safety first and and the bike felt fine um and so from there, um, off the bike in about third place, not about, I think it was third place. And um, yeah, onto the run. And the run was quite significantly brutal. So there we have it. We're now through a solid swim. I felt pretty good on that. It was less intimidating and worrisome than I thought. We're through the bike, some mishaps and mechanicals not mishaps, but mechanicals, but fueled well, hydrated well, feel overall pretty good, nothing too taxing, and just rolling with it. And again, applying the fitness that I have. Is it the best fitness I've ever had? No, of course not. Is it something that I feel super strong and no matter what the day throws at me, I can handle? Also not. But I'm feeling connected. I'm feeling um, fit with regards to that. I still have plenty of energy um, ready for the this marathon or more ahead. And again, curious as to how the day will unfold. So pristine swim, 
beautiful bike ride visually and temperatures were fine too starting that early it was nice and cool it didn't really heat up until probably i would say the last hour on that bike and now we're on to the run which now it's getting hot it's in the mid 80s and for um you know for alaska that's pretty hot but you know nothing unusual to what we have anywhere else racing in the summer and what everybody's experiencing currently on temperatures throughout the united states if not a lot hotter with temperatures in the upper 90s and hundreds but yeah so moving on to the run you know that was the interesting part on this entire approach and the entire training with regards to alaska man and that is knowing that you have about a 17 mile run until you really get on the mountain and so it was about two parts of a run. One, get through the 17 miles efficiently, effectively, fueled, um, aware, um, smart energy output, conserving um, energy with regards to the heat and it draining you, and being ready for two extreme mountain climbs. And I'll get to that, but Half of those 17 miles that came before the mountain climbs um, is on trail and a lot longer and harder than I thought. Um, the, the pavement piece, I settled right in, uh, easy to sort of find a rhythm and get going. But then on the trails, it's, it definitely um, started catching up to me, not because of the difficulty, but just overall knowing I can't expend the effort here and I've got to be smart and be conservative because I was worried about that mountain ahead. At this time, I'm now back into second place and um, knowing that I'm running um, into and cutting time into the leader. Um, I, I could see him at certain spots as well as I've been told. And so um, what was probably about a 12 minute lead off the bike by him and um, also second place in there, I was third, I think, off the bike, um, is now down to like seven minutes. So I made up a fair amount of time and felt pretty good about, you know, letting it unfold. Again, I didn't have a strategy on how I was going to go about this, or did I have a strategy or grit to like push and, and, and get up there and try to contend for the win. It's, it was more understanding that you're going to take what your fitness gives you today. And if you're fitness and enjoying the day and taking it all in and <clears throat> truly living it sets up for an opportunity to push hard for uh, winning, great. If it doesn't, it's not going to bum me out or create a big um, um, wonder down the road. Well, had I done this or had I approached it differently? No, it was more I'd set a specific um, intention with regards to this race earlier in the week in Alaska, and that was, I'm just gonna put my fitness out there and see what it nets me. Could that have been a win? I think so. Um, had I not had the mechanical on the bike and lost a good 15, 20 minutes right there because I couldn't be arrow, maybe. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's definite, but I think so. I feel like I could have been further up there and that 12 minute deficit into T two would have probably been a five minute or three minute lead which i then could have maybe expanded on that first 17 miles of the run and then knowing that the eventual winner of the race who has experience on the course would probably come hunting me down on the run it would have made it a different dynamic but that wasn't the day 
nor was it the day that was meant to be. So instead, it was it unfolded and it felt great and it was fun. And yeah, that run on Alaska Man is definitely unique. Um, once I'm on the trails, the mosquitoes started coming out and I started to get worried because I was like, uh-oh, here I am sweaty, not moving that fast. It's in the sun and then in the shade and I'm sort of running at the speed of what these big Alaska mosquitoes can run right next to you at. And but they never bothered me beyond that one section. Um, they started not swarming, but they were definitely around a bit. And I was worried about having to smack them off and stuff. But then we turned into the forest and off they, they were gone. Never became an issue. There's this amazing trail and beautiful section. And then you come to this hand tram where you have to pull yourself on a metal cable in a tram car across this deep uh, canyon and uh on your own on your own um power right so you climb into this metal tram box cable uh, uh this box hanging from a cable and you pull on the cable to pull yourself and this big metal box about mm, 50 yards across this canyon and then you get out on the other side well it wrecks your upper body you're exhausted from that but you know Luckily, I was far enough up there that I didn't have to share it with another person or another competitor because I can see that pulling two people in it or three people in it because they're your fellow competitors, I think it's a two-person limit. So another person in that uh, container, in that metal box would have been quite hard and it, it costs a lot of time. So I was lucky with that and uh, able to run through there. And then it came to back into transition area for the 17 after 17 miles run running and now you have 10 miles on the mountain and I quick quickly switched shoes from um, sort of trail uh, so from road shoes and uh, quicker paced shoes to more trail and mountain shoes with more support and more knobs in order to really deal with the gravel and when they say going straight up a mountain it is truly straight up a ski mountain and gaining 2,000 feet of vertical in a matter of a mile and a half, less than that even in some cases, it was brutal. Fully exposed to the sun, straight uphill, carrying bear spray, carrying your water, carrying your gear with your support team member because it is pretty gnarly up there. You're not necessarily at altitude at all because most of Alaska in this area is at sea level and the highest peaks even filled with snow are maybe 3,000 feet high. So it's funny, my buddy Taylor was like, I sleep higher than these peaks because he's from Boulder. But it's more that you're just gaining so much altitude straight up a mountain, straight up a ski mountain um, so quickly that it really just taxes your calves and your glutes and your lower back. And there's, there's no running happening. You're just hiking. And so were the other competitors, those behind me and those in front of me. Um, it's not like I was that tired and therefore I was hiking. Everybody's hiking. So you get to the top, gorgeous views, beautiful scenery, beautiful location, running along this crest of these, these peaks of the snow um, uh, of the ski resort. And then you head 
just the same way, basically straight down the mountain. So a totally different pressure on the quads, on the knees, on your toes, in the front of your shoes. They're wet. You just went through snow. You're pouring water over you because it's 80 plus degrees and then exposed on the side of a ski slope with no shade makes it even hotter. And so, yeah, straight down the mountain and hot, dry, and fully exposed, you turn around and basically not the same path, but a different way straight up the mountain again. Again, not runnable, mainly hikeable, and you're just cursing the mountain. There's sections where you're going straight up and they've made these steps. So you're basically doing these huge box stair steps and uh, climbing up pretty steep. And by the time you're on the mountain the second time to the top of the tram, to the top of the ski resort, you're over it. But you still have to run down pretty hard on those shell-shocked, exhausted legs from a 114-mile bike. And this point now, uh, 27 miles into your run. So that definitely made it quite hard, quite challenging. It's what really um, separates the event in making it really difficult. But again, exciting, different, stimulating, fun, challenging, curious, and, uh, you know, something different. Again, in an Ironman where you're running 26.2 at an MDOT event and you're basing it on pace and not slowing down and managing calorie intake and fluids and how you're getting through aid stations and how you're um, splitting the loops and who you're competing against and where you are in the race, completely different focus and approach. Here, you're going slow enough to drink and to eat, but you're also that far into the day and that you don't really want to. And it's this whole different dynamic. You have a huge mountain you're going up, but on the other hand, it's visually behind you so stimulating. And you realize within 10 minutes of running how much altitude you gain and you look back down into the valley to where you just started and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And you're doing it on your own power after a 114-mile bike. And um, I think it turned out only to be a two-mile swim. But still, never have I done something like that, like a trail race, basically a 50K um, going up a mountain, which is not uncommon in trail races because a lot of them are around ski resorts in the summer. Um, but never on the back end of a swim and a bike like that. So overall... You know, it ended up being that I lost a, a, a fair amount of time on that uh, mountain loops, on those two mountain loops to the front runner. Um, he had done the race before, had some strategy around it, and definitely was a lot fitter and more prepared for that up and down than I was. But I will also say that there was not a competitive um, ounce in my body to really push that hard to try to either minimize the damage with regards to losing more time or trying to put in time. It was more like, this is what I have for today and I'm completely at peace with it. <laughs> I will say on a side note, um, and a lot of people have laughed slash rolled their eyes about this, is that um, the winner of the race and the second place as well as the um, first place over 40 masters all got the same prize. And that was a growler, a cooler, a, a sort of a metal growler filled with beer from the local brewery. And so having, having seen that on the website and knowing that for no more effort do I get no less beer 
<laughs> it sort of took the motivation off the table a little bit, knowing that my 28 ounces of beer and his 28 ounces of beer would be exactly the same, taste the same, and would be just as enjoyable. And me not having to work that much harder to still keep second place was sort of a, a fun mental game to play. At first, I actually thought I was going to get the over 40 um, growler as well. So I was thinking, man, I might walk away with two growlers, whereas the winner only walks away with one because I think he was like 33. And so, uh, but that wasn't the case. They were like, come on, Chris, you can't take two prizes. So they gave it to somebody else. But yeah, overall, well-run event, enjoyable event. I'm glad I did it. It was a fun experience. Did some fishing and did some all kinds of adventures in Alaska. Um, did some biplane trips. We saw glaciers. We hiked glaciers. We did all kinds of random events. And, you know, it is a unique part of the world. It is a really special corner of the world. The fact that that's part of the United States and so wild and so big and so awe-inspiring and so overwhelming and how big and huge and empty it is, right? We were flying in a plane to a fishing site and the pilot told us that 90% of the state is untouched by roads. So here you are, you're driving roads and I rode them and, um, cycled them and ran on them a little bit. And that was only touching 10% of that entire state. So most access is via plane or boat and so forth. So really fascinating. Now we did have a bit of an issue with forest fires, as I was saying earlier, and combine that with temperatures, so and as well as high temperatures. So the snow melt was extremely high. I couldn't go whitewater rafting as I wanted to with my buddy. And um, that was supposedly a great adventure. But overall, nothing but positive experiences and fun things to say about Alaska Man and how it was organized. Again, you change your expectations knowing that this is a smaller, more grassroots event. So no, the aid stations are not stocked like an Ironman or an MDOT event where you're paying 800 bucks for the entry and everything's perfectly manicured and prepped. This is a little bit more rudimentary and back to basics and the offering might be different than what you're used to or way more limited. But you know that. You know that this is a smaller event and more just an adventure and curiosity and um, putting the fitness to the test. And so that was Alaska Man this year. Adventure, fun, and I would recommend it to anybody. Um, Anchorage also was a fun town and city to visit. And overall, Seward and Homer and the whole Kenai Peninsula, we saw a lot and experienced a lot and met a ton of really nice, friendly people from that area. And um, you had nothing but great experiences, great restaurants, great local vibes, great local input with regards to restaurants and places to stay and adventures to take on. And uh, yeah, so Alaska Man 2019. One of the lessons I wanted to bring up from Alaska Man is your ability to use your go all day pacing, your aerobic pace approach, and apply that in racing. And it's not easy to do because many times we become impatient. We sort of let um, our, uh, our, our tension of not getting what we want in the moment get in the way of putting together a good performances performance, right? That's willpower. Willpower is mastering the tension of not getting what we want in the moment. 
And instead, aerobic go all day pacing is about managing your impulses long enough to avoid getting in your own way. And that's where the challenge lies, right? Managing your impulses long enough to avoid getting in your own way, allowing the day to unfold, allowing the training that you have done to have an opportunity to display itself with the proper fueling and the proper hydration and the proper pacing and proper attentiveness to in, in order to have the day over a long period of time, right? It's an endurance event to display the fitness you've built up you've worked on so hard and that's the part too when you're pleased and enjoying the training and happy in the present moment with your training racing is just putting the joy of training to fruition it's allowing things to unfold because the joy of training allowed you to reach a fitness level the current best version of yourself fitness level and allowing that with some rest and a proper environment with regards to a race as well as fueling and hydration and a good strategy to just sort of let it unfold and let it be let it happen um, and and take advantage of the sensations and the body and the, the emotions of race day with that same relaxed approach of what we learned and enjoy so much in training. And that's sort of what Alaska Man was. Um, it's not a question of competitiveness. It's not that I've lost being competitive. It's just um, enjoying the training and the fitness and the curiosity so much, um, um, living uh, my training life in such abundance, I don't see a need to necessarily use a race to validate that I'm fit enough or can achieve an outcome. It is more allowing the training and the fitness that I've built to sort of display itself for me to have the maximum effective outcome for that day. Um, and that's what endurance racing has become for me, applying the fitness for that maximum effective dose, right? That maximum enjoyment factor, that maximum absorption factor of the day to sort of realize and enjoy and truly um, incorporate in every aspect what it is I love about endurance racing and adventures and the training. And that is just seeing what the body can do with, let's say in this case, an aerobic go all day pace and not letting little things get in the way of having an outcome that allows me to display that go all day pace. And that's what I say to so many of my athletes. And that is exactly what I was mentioning with willpower mastering the tension of not getting what we want in the moment, instead taking that moment, extending it out over 8, 9, 10, 12, 16, 30 hours, many days, right? In order to say, okay, my willpower is extended out. It is one big flood of tension and things that I want that will happen over a gradual window, not just in the immediate now.
not just if somebody passes me, not just if I'm not having as good of a leg or a day or a discipline as I wanted to. It is letting the day unfold because there's plenty of real estate left and knowing that I have an opportunity to continue to display the fitness and the go all day pacing that I've trained and enjoyed training. So that's the key word there though too is enjoying the training if you don't enjoy the training of course you want to race to get it over with to to validate why it is you suffered and and sacrificed so much time well then we run into a different equation which is fine too i'm not saying that can't happen um i know many olympic caliber elite world-class swimmers world-class triathletes world-class cyclists world-class runners who don't enjoy the training. They'll be the first ones to complain, the first ones to say they don't enjoy the training. They love the racing. They love the competitiveness. They love the sensation of racing others, beating others, putting all the marbles out there, the pain, the threshold, the lungs burning. The you know They are wired differently. That's just who they are. And again, that's a different approach. That's where it's working on how do we get the training to be um, more in tune with what we're preparing for in the racing. The excitement of racing is what we're trying to tap into in training. We make every workout or a couple workouts a week a race to keep the athlete, again, growing, adapting, getting the stimulus they need to have the best future outcome. So... But that's what I wanted to highlight with aerobic uh, race day pacing and go all day pacing and the aerobic pace approach. And the beauty with that too is it feels the same. Your aerobic pacing just gets faster and faster and faster. But the effort level, the feel on the body and how you're experiencing the day stays almost the same. It's not harder. You're just fitter and your go all day pacing is allowing the day that watts, the run pace, the swim pace to be faster at the same effort. And that's the fun part of endurance racing in that respect. A guy who is super competitive and loves the the lung burning efforts, they're not going to be endurance racers. Usually they're sprinters or shorter event racers because they can't sustain that that intensity that competitiveness over so many hours and then those that are able to do that again they're containing they're mastering their willpower they're keeping themselves from getting in their own way and are able to put forth a good enough effort for a long enough period of time to still crush the field so just something to keep in mind as you're thinking about well what kind of racer am i I received an interesting question here the other day. Not that the question content is interesting, but the way we want to think about how we train for something like this. And that is regarding someone who's coming off of a leg injury. I've done some half marathons, and I think I have an okay level of fitness. I'm interested in doing a 40-mile hilly race. Do you think I have enough time to prepare? And it is now, right, July. And so this event is in March of 2020. Now, of course, on paper, you have enough time to prepare. 
But what was the leg injury? Um, What is your time availability? What is your commitment? How badly do you want to do this 40-mile event? Because if you're new to ultra running, and this is sort of an entry-level way to get in there, this um, event, Mount Tammany 10, out in uh, the Delaware Water Gap by New Jersey, is it's it's a great event and what's good about it is there's a lot of people who are newer to ultra running in a beautiful environment right march could be a little chilly and wet but anyway the point here is it's an eight to ten ish hour event 40 miles and the question is your ability to build up to 40 miles and then of course your ability to do the longer weekends that's all it is when you're looking at events, when you're thinking about planning for an ultra run, an Ironman, Ultraman, a longer event, it's not a question of can I do a 10-hour event on one day in the future. It's more how prepared do I want to be? How much do I want to enjoy this? How much do I want to be fit and um prepared in the sense that when I'm done with it, I'm not injured or flat or demotivated because it took so much out of me. It cost me so much of my energy for six, seven, eight weeks that I was flat or didn't want to enjoy this healthy fitness-based lifestyle and so forth. As you go through all these equations, it's like, what's the reality? Do I have time to occasionally build up to a five-hour Saturday and a three-hour Sunday? Right? Do I have time to occasionally or once or twice over the next eight months to you know, do a, a simulation of not necessarily 40 miles, but let's say a 10-hour event where you go an afternoon five-hour run and the next morning another five-hour run right? to get that 10 hours in a short time window like we've talked about in the 50-mile training but, or the 50K training. Um, so there's so many factors that go into it, but I just was bringing this up because this is more a question of my planning and how do I look at events, whether it's for my athletes, for myself, or when I give advice to athletes that I don't coach. It's what can you do? How will the journey, how does that look for you? And how do you see yourself executing it? Um, You know, I had a conversation with somebody else the other day. It's like, yeah, it's fine to have a great endeavor plan, but we all know that life gets in the way right? We all know that the training on paper looks great and can you and easy and or um, the athlete was asking me about annual training plans. And I said to him, quite honestly, that's a coach to me that doesn't coach. Oh, (laughs) that's Winnie. She's getting older. (laughs) Um, I said, that's a coach to me that's not familiar with or doesn't address sort of the training. Oh, hold on a second. That to me is a coach that's not really in tune with what we do as masters athletes, as adult athletes, because we all know that work and family will derail an annual training plan. Who you are in six weeks, who you are in three months, who you are in six months will derail the annual training plan. And athletes ask me a lot, do you work off of an annual training plan? I say, no, absolutely not. And that I say that with absolutely, because there's so many factors that go into who you currently are as an athlete versus 
who you want to be and where you're looking to get to. Sure, you have a destination, you have an event, you have a future outcome and desired outcome that you're working towards. But the path, the map, the terrain on how we're going to get there is influenced by so many things along the way. And as I've said before, I can only coach you, train you. You should all only focus on training yourselves and coaching yourselves on where you're at. Because if you're training yourself, and am I coaching you where you're at, then we can grow progressively, significantly to a new you, better tomorrow than you were today, and so forth. But in order to do that, I need to know where you are today. Right. And so I take, I coach based off of two, three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time. And then I get a sense of what you're getting in and what you're successful with. I can see what you've gotten in the last two, three, four, six, eight, ten 10 weeks and see the reality of how we're progressing towards a future event. I mean, I definitely have athletes where the athlete is just not getting in the hours, let's say for an Ironman or for a 50 mile or, or for a hundred miler. And there's some difficult conversations there where it's like, this is not going to cut it. I'm sorry. And, and you might think, well, I thought, Chris, you said with enough time, we can prepare for anything for sure. But well, there also has to be a reality with regards to what event you're doing. You can't get ready for a hundred miler off of four hours of training a week, even if you do it, you know, for 60 weeks <laughs> um, consistently, it's just still going to be miserable. And that's why I often like a 50K and a 50 mile or a 100K along the way to give you that dose of reality, that smack across the face in many cases. I always see that as like, you know, in the old days when somebody just took a glove out and just smacked somebody across the face to give them, shake them awake. Um, in order to give them that dose of reality, like, okay, yeah, four hours a week is not enough training for a 100 mile. And of course, that's an extreme example, but... There are athletes that I have that struggle with five, six hours a week and they're getting ready for an Ironman. And I'm like, that's just not going to cut it. I'm sorry. You're, you're heading towards a really, really difficult reality. And the disappointment of DNFing or not making cutoffs is way worse, way worse than um, the just not feeling great that day or not being at the best level of your fitness. There's the, the one contrast is, okay, I could do this Ironman or this event, this 50 miler or 100 miler or multi-day event better, sure. But currently my life didn't allow it, but I can do it. I did it, right? Maybe not to the best of my talent and ability and what I feel I'm capable of, but I can do it. And the other end of that spectrum is, I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing enough for it. And I'm going to DNF. I'm going to miss cutoffs. I'm going to get pulled off the course. I'm going to, you know, feel miserable and quit because I'm in such a pain cave. I'm in such a valley of emotions. So anyway, my point here is annual training plans and looking too far in the future. Sure, you want to have concepts and general levels of fitness that you do want to reach and sort of mile markers and posts way out there and saying, you know, I want to get a hundred, few hundred mile runs, runs, um, bikes in for my Ironman. I want to get a few 20 mile runs in for my Ironman. I want to get a few, you know, and then string together some simulation, but that's still out there. You still have to train in the now to how do I connect to the ability to do that in the future? 
And remember what we said in the past, that simulation weekend or those long training weekends should be able to be absorbed. They shouldn't shell you. They shouldn't ruin you. And therefore, there's, that's a fitness level we need to progress to. Can somebody, can I take many people out right now and ride with them and maintain them well enough so that they can ride 100 miles? Yes, I fully believe that. Maybe not super mountainous or hilly, but well enough to take your time and go at an easy enough effort so that you can do 100 miles. Now, are you miserable on that saddle and turning your legs over those last 25 miles? Maybe. Are you miserable, uncomfortable, can't sleep, and just flat and low energy for three, four, five, six, ten 10 days after because it was so far over reach of your fitness? <laughs> yeah, maybe, right? Are you sore? Does your lower back hurt? Are your hands and shoulders sore because you rode so long in the cycling position that everything hurts, especially those last 25 miles on the bike? So yeah, maybe. But, and that that's, a, those are examples of how you're not at the fitness level to absorb that we're doing this in order to absorb it, have the body take it in and then recover from it quickly and then do something again the next day. That's when we're getting to fitness levels that are applicable in the endurance world. So anyway, I thought I'd talk that through a little bit here. As I mentioned, I received, I would say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about 15 really good emails while I've been on hiatus, which you think over a month isn't that bad, and um, with regards to the podcast and, and good questions. So I want to try to um, get through these pretty quickly um, in order to dive into some deeper topics that they come up with. Hi, Chris. Can you increase VO2 max with just zone two training? Or must zone three and zone four be included? I ask because I'm training for a 50K trail race. Over the past month, I've only included zone two training in my program. My VO2 at max on my Garmin has continued to drop even though I'm training 30 to 40 miles a week. It's down to 37. I now include Z3, Z4 into my program because I just recently listened to the Weekly Word podcast episode 20 and you mentioned to train Z2 80%, Z3 15%, Z4 higher 5%. Well, again, any of those formulas aren't going to be perfect for the volume and the training and the stimulus that you need. It's hard to give you a real good answer here because I'm not familiar with your past volume, with your capabilities with regards to hill repeats and tempo work and threshold work, right? A lot of athletes, um, there's a familiarity to uh, that the coach needs to work around because I need to understand what your um, ability is to sprint and push beyond the pain levels. Some people are really good with that. They're just able to, you know, tolerate a high level of anaerobic threshold pain. Others, someone like me, I hate that. <laughs> I'm awful at sprinting or training at a high intensity level. High intensity training in general makes my makes me just go upside down. I don't enjoy it. I struggle with it. I get psyched out of it almost mentally. So everybody's a little different. So what you need and based off of your numbers, it's hard to say that based off of the information you've given me. But I would always include some intensity work. For example, my intensity work for long trail runs are hills and being aggressive with them 
or um, questions around um, leg turnover or drills or I love strides because strides allow for high intensity, short bursts in speed, leg turnover really gets the heart rate up there, but you recover so quickly from them. So, so let's see if that answers this. Can you increase VO2 max with just zone two training or must zone three and zone four be, be included? You could, absolutely. It depends again on how um, much volume you have in your legs and your years of training. Um, in some cases, people continue to improve and improve their zone two and their VO2 max despite only zone two training. Others have sort of reached a threshold, a, a limit of where the time at zone two isn't going to improve their top end, right? Because the efficiency of motion of running is helping your sprinting if you're fit enough at the zone two um, level. So saying that differently is if you have a lot of experience running and you have a lot of miles in your legs running, well, then zone two isn't that easy. It means you're still running with a good stride, technique, form, leg turnover, posture. And so that slower running, not necessarily different technique running, is still making you more economical and efficient in your movements with, so that when you go faster, you're taking advantage of those economical, efficient stride-based movements. Your oxygen uptake is still being improved even at the lower heart rate numbers and your energy delivery throughout the body and red blood cells and white blood cells and all the little things that are happening physiologically while you're running are improving, are getting more efficient, are being connected, are getting stronger. So yes, you can improve VO2 max at zone two, but it depends again where you are with volume and years of running and efficiency. Some people that are newer to endurance sports as well as newer to running, their zone two is going to be so low because it quickly kicks up attacks on the body that they're basically walking. And so their form and technique while they're running is going to be different and compromised. And so it's not creating efficiencies for the higher intensity, faster turnover work. Though it's a different stimulus, different running stride, different turnover, different oxygen uptake and so forth. So you can see there are differences and it just depends on where you um, are. But best practice would surely be to continue to um, include tempo work, zone three, threshold work, zone four, and some VO2 max, which is zone five, zone six, best effort stuff. Short, but at least including it in your weekly repertoire, re weekly prescription of training. Um, yeah, I think that should answer it. All right, email number two, Chris. Uh, Thank you so much for the work you do. I just completed my first ever half Ironman and I was listening to the Weekly Word podcast for all my training rides and runs. My event was the same time as Alaska Man and I was thinking about you during your event while I was doing mine. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, anyway, could you talk about what to do after a huge race? Do you do any kind of active recovery, stretching, cold, hot bath? I push myself pretty hard and I'm paying for it the next day. Thought it would be nice to hear about some general tips on what you do to recover and heal. Well, personally, what I do to recover and heal is basically dial it way back for two, three weeks. Um, really allow the body to heal, to rebuild, to rest, to recover, 
to replenish, to refuel. So after Alaska, man, I still had those days in Alaska where I did very much of nothing, maybe a hike here or there. And then I came home and had an easy, easy week where I would take two days off and train one day and then two days off and train another day and just whatever sport or discipline I was in the mood to do that week. And then the next week started bringing back up the volume a little bit because we were in Victor in Idaho. And from there, you know, we had opportunities to trail run and hike and long bike rides. So the volume definitely quickly jumped up there compared to the week before, but nothing at the volume or distances or efforts that I was doing in the bigger training before Alaska. All the while eating well, drinking well, um, sleeping well, and just allowing the body to rebuild itself on its own pace, listening to it and letting it be. And also mentally um, saying to myself or to yourself, um, you know, today I'm not really in the mood. That's fine. These are the weeks, these are the days post-event, long event or hard event, where you say, yes, well, today's the one of the days where if I'm not in the mood, I just won't. If there's other things I want to do, I'll do them. If there's work I need to catch up on, I'll do that. If I'd rather spend this week and do more time with my family this week and not train at all, this is the week to do it. So there's probably better protocols or specific actions you can take with ice baths and so forth and with regards to massage and um, you know recovery, Normatec boots and all the different ways that you can quickly ramp back up into your regular training volume. But again, because we're masters athletes, because we went pro in something other than this sport, I like to just shift the focus and swing the pendulum to the full other end of the spectrum, which is family and work and things I want to do that I can't do or haven't had time to do when I was training. More time with the dogs, longer exercise with them or drinking a few extra beers at the park with them or whatever. Um, so yeah, um, I'm also in the process with my family of moving into a new home and finishing construction. And so there's a lot of things and, and pieces that need to get done there. So it's all a good timing with knowing the training will ramp back up ever so gently, ever so gradually over time that to embrace this time of doing less and having extra time available and applying it to the areas that we do actually tax the rest of the season. So I'm not sure I'm answering it perfectly there when it comes to truly training tips, but those are, that's how I would go about it. Now, you'll also have noticed that, yeah, a day or two after the event is when the DOMS, the delay of muscle soreness, delayed onset of muscle soreness kicks in the most, and you're most sore in the two, three days post an event. But then that will gradually wear off, and you'll feel better and better. Now, what happens too is that physically, from a mental um, body scan aspect, you feel pretty good after a couple of days, five, six, seven days. You feel your energy coming back and you're actually looking to train again. But what you'll notice is that when you do train again, you quickly run out of gears or fizzle out of that energy. That's just clearly showing that below the surface, despite your day-to-day -day activities, you're feeling recovered and fresh, asking your body to do any type of training, right? Stimulus and recovery and adaptation. Um, that's not there yet. Where, and so the further you get away on the far end of the event, um, 
the better you will notice you can train longer and longer and not get fatigued or flat or fizzle out of energy. And I would say after about three, four weeks, you really notice, okay, I'm close. And if you've done an Ironman or something longer, usually it's like five, six weeks it takes. And that's also the part to understand here. Don't look for adaptations or st training stimulus after an A event or a major event um, in the first few weeks. There's no point in it. So instead, focus on technique, focus on easy movements and, and cleaning up your stroke swimming or your pedal stroke cycling or your footwork and form running. Run light, run easy. Don't look for sprints or intervals or improvements or hill repeats. Don't look to do too much on the bike as well as in swims. And then gradually you'll notice after four or five weeks that it's back and that you're able to tolerate a prescription and an adaptation is being absorbed. And then you, then you know you're ready. But that's typically how I go about even in, in between Ironmans and so forth that I really allow for the body to let me know when it's ready. So I hope I answered that effectively. All right, moving right along here. Hi, Chris. Firstly, firstly, thank you for the Weekly Word podcast I discovered a few months back and I've been cherry picking through the episodes in the catalog ever since. Looking forward to new episodes. Whilst not new to endurance sport, I turned to triathlon five years ago for a new challenge and have worked my way from local sprint events to racing Ironman events in Europe in that time. During that time, I had, a, had my fair share of challenges balancing your three-legged stool with a young family, career ups and downs, and so on. Whilst still nursing, I like that whilst, and still nursing a competitive streak, so it's been it's, it's both refreshing and a weekly dose of valuable perspective to listen to your podcast and reflect on the journey so far and where it might take me next. That's a uh, very nice paragraph, and I appreciate that insight because it is back to what we were saying earlier. You can only train where you currently are. And the more we embrace that as athletes to accept that, the better outcomes we'll have. And I was talking to an athlete the other day. Things will happen in their due time according to your life and what you um, and your path. And trying to change that or force that or have expectations around that becomes very difficult. Your path and achieving your goals will happen when they're meant to happen. I firmly believe that. And when we stay in the moment of letting life sort of be as it is right now, doing our best, of course, not just sitting back and saying, hey, it'll present itself, but doing our best, doing our training, doing our work, spending our time with family and working through that and accepting that it, the hard work will pay off, the consistency will pay off in my time when I am meant to have that success. It's an important thing um, that I, a quote that I heard a few days ago, maybe, and that it was a reminder and that is things happen for us, not to us. And when I think about it, for us aspect, the for us means we're, in, we're allowing it to marinate and matriculate the way it needs to. And then when it does happen, the outcome is often so good that we say, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Sure, I had some bumps and bruises along the way, but the way it came to fruition this way feels the best feels right, feels like it was at the right time meant for me. And 
especially with this endurance racing and endurance adventures and um, expeditions out there for so many people, I think it's important to keep that perspective in mind. What has prompted me to write is in combination of my thinking and preparation for Ironman Hamburg at the end of July and having just listened to an old episode of your post-race debrief of Ironman Whistler. My questions relate to nutrition and I wonder if you can share your thoughts on these. Ironman Hamburg, that's where my half of my family lives. It'd be fun to do that. But remember, they canceled that swim last year because the water was too dirty in the Ulster. Um, one, in your podcast, your nutritional advice is usually in terms of calorie intake. However, most of my research and planning for racing usually focuses on carb intake as the preferred measure of refueling. The oft-quoted formula, one gram of carb per kilogram of body weight per hour. Up to the maximum the body can absorb in an hour. Is your preference for calories based on particular thinking or research of your part to frame it as calories, or is it simply a European North American cultural thing that is, and that this is basically like for like? Um, no, I think one's more a scientific approach, and the other one is more a general practice approach. Um, I definitely have seen the grams per kilogram of body weight approach in the United States plenty, especially by a lot of coaches and nutritionists as well. But I find getting into the minutia of that gets complicated. And there's so many good products out there that if we've tried them in training, gets us mighty close to what we need with calories and um, with carbs versus proteins or fats. And a lot smarter and more professional people who do this for a living at the Cliff Bar companies, at the Bonk Breaker companies, at the larger nutrition, sports nutrition companies, they are focused on the proper balance and formulas and amounts so that you can just focus on their product or using things that work for you. And again, I can't reiterate enough, the, the nutrition and the fueling and the hydration for your racing has to feel very, very familiar and confident and has been tested and retested and reformulated many times in training. So that there shouldn't be any questions if it's too hot, too cold, if it's a rainy day, if it's um, higher intensity, if it's, you know, there's so many things that could affect how you take in your nutrition um, that you would want to make sure that you have played with them all and feel good that you have a solid plan as well as options when that plan goes wrong, right? Everybody has a good plan until they get punched in the face. Well, you losing your bars within the first 10 kilometers of the bike ride, it can happen. You hit some railroad tracks, everything flies off. Your bottles, you drop them by mistake or you forget them because of Ironman, all kinds of things going through your head. Those things all happen. So you want to know, all right, well, on the course, they have this nutrition and I can take that in. So the reason I also like calories is because on the bike and most energy burn on the computers, kilojoule is the same as calories, which you can see your burn rate and you can match. Let's say in most cases, I like to use a formula of about 30% to keep fueling. So if you look at a long bike ride of yours and see how much energy you burned, usually it's about, let's say, 2,000 to 3,000. If you're a bigger guy, 
4,000 kilojoules, right, for a five, six, seven hour bike ride. Well, you can see how much you ate and compare it to your burn rate and what you needed. And that can also prepare you for what you need during Ironman because your burn rate, um, your total amount burned for 112 uh, miles, 180 kilometers is not going to change. <laughs> this is something um, very confusing for a lot of people, but it is the same burn rate not hourly burn rate, I'm saying total burn, consumption of a burn of energy. And so therefore, once you know that number, or close to it, um, you can then pretty much pinpoint exactly how many calories you need for the total bike ride. Because if you ride 180 kilometers, and you burn 3500 kilojoules, and you start working around the 30% rule, right? So you're going to eat 1050 calories on that bike ride. Now you can do that 180 kilometers fast, it'll still burn about 3500. Or easy, it'll still burn about 3500. Because it's still moving your body force weight over a distance, same consumption total. Um, because if you ride it faster, the burn rate is higher, but you get to the finish quicker still 3,500 kilojoule. If you ride it easier, the burn rate is lower, but it takes you longer to get there, still 3,500 calories in this example of 3,500. And then you go from there and say, all right, I would let me start with about 1,000 calories. And now I know if I have enough energy, I've kept the bathtub pretty topped off or pretty level in order to run effectively longer off the bike. And you might need 1200, you might only need 900, I doubt less than 30%, but maybe. Um, and then you get a great idea of how to really pinpoint your needs. So something to keep in mind and why I like to use calories. Two, in your Ironman Whistler podcast, you talk about only counting half the calories from energy drink. That is the first I've heard of that. And I wondered what is your reasoning for it? I've always raced on the assumption I was getting full carbohydrate benefit from energy drink I was taking on. So your comments got me querying the, that, assumptions, that assumption. Yes, I do approach it like that. I don't believe that fluid calories are as significant and as um, sustain, sustaining in energy burn as real food, as regular edible food fueling calories. I believe that drinking your calories burns through quickly. It's highly sugar. It's usually sugar and sugar burns off very quickly. It's a short bounce. It's a short spike versus foods that have a slower burning effect, have less of a blood sugar, um, blood sugar spiking effect, have a slower um, burn and spike or not spike or release effect and therefore are better calories better fuel sources than just drink. I don't believe in the Carbo Pros and the high calorie drinks. I've done them. I've been very successful at Ironman with those drinks. Actually, my PR for any Ironman ever has been off of Carbo Pro based products. But over the years, I've gotten away from it on purpose because I want to sustain my day, my energy, my fueling, my level headedness because of less spikes in blood sugar, as well as energy, as well as having to fuel differently because I quickly run out of the energy again and need more 
sugar, <laughs> which is what those drinks, where the calories in those drinks usually come from. So, um, and yes, Carbo Pro is uh, not as sugary and it can help you with regards to calories, but I only count it as 50%. And it has never disappointed me or many of my athletes over the years um, because, again, the sustaining ability of drink fluids versus real calories, um, real food, I shouldn't say real calories because any exercise physiologist as well as chemist will just jump all over me for that. But um, I like real food, I write things that you chew and that settle in your stomach and then can be can absorb the fluids and can work with you better and burn off slower and have a better impact. And so that's why I go about that. Okay, and final email of this week of this question of this question, of this email grouping. Hi, Chris, I have another zone two question, please. On Friday, I ran 15 miles for the first time with the intention of it all being in zone two. Ooh, ooh I can tell you right now that might not go well. Um, and you might say, why? Well, it's hard to do a distance at a certain heart rate and look at the pace and feel um, really good about it unless you're using it as like a weekly check-in and then to see how gradually you can go further and further into that 15 miles, for example, without having to slow down due to the heart rate gradually coming up or having to go to a walk or being frustrated how slow the pace is while staying in zone two. Um, so it's just, it's hard. Um, I managed zone two for the first 10 miles, but the last five miles, I was tired and frustrated, frustrated to having to walk for moments. So I didn't really stay in zone two. Although my average heart rate for the entire range was within zone two. Yes. That's also on a lot of bike rides. People go for bike rides and say afterwards, well, look, my heart rate average was zone two. Yeah. Well, that doesn't include the stop signs and stoplights and the downhills and the coasting where you had very low heart rate, which means in order to average out at zone two, you must have been at zone three, zone four, plenty of times as well. If you're doing an average of zone two for a bike ride, it should be below zone two for a typical bike ride where you're coasting and rolling downhills and, you know, coming to stop signs and all that. So, um, the question is, did I invalidate the 10 miles of zone two work by then going out of zone two or not? No, not at all. It's time in zone two that overall accumulates. Now, you didn't invalidate it, but if you constantly do that, you are not going to have as quick of an absorption, adaptate, adaptation, um, growth of your abilities and speed and fitness at zone two. You just want to maximize the time you can be there. I say to many athletes that get super frustrated, like I've said before on the podcast too, feel free to get out of zone two. Just look at it for the week. Is 80% of my time this week training been basically at zone two? That's great. If this week it wasn't or 75% only or 70% only, fine. It's when you go into the 50% right range, and then the other 50% is zone three, well, then you're in the average of a gray zone, right? You're not having quite the time and the benefits at zone two, but you're also not having the stimulus and tempo work advent, uh, um, benefits of zone three either. So you want to be pretty specific. 
What you could also do is stop at the 10 miles um, and zone two. Take two, three, four, five minutes. Shake it out. That's not going to change your ability to run 15 miles continuous if you stop for five minutes after 10. It's not like you recovered in time or that now um, invalidated what would be a 15-mile run. No, you'd have to stop for over an hour to do that. So I would recommend stop. Stop the watch or stop the clock. Um, Drink, eat, shake the legs out, and maybe then only get three miles further or two miles further still at zone two. Stop again, maybe only now for a minute, and then finish the remaining two or three miles like that. What you'll find is you did the 15 miles at zone two, but you took four minutes rest or five total minutes of rest. Not a big deal. That means, again, you expand upon that in the future. Next time you do it, you realize, I got 11 miles in before I had to take a rest. Or at 10 miles, I stopped and I only needed 90 seconds rest or two minutes. And then I was able to finish the rest of the run without getting out of zone three or so forth. There's many ways you can play with it where you say, well, I ran 15 miles of which 14 were at zone two. I ran 10 at zone two. I walked one mile super easy. And then I ran the remaining four at zone two. Same thing, all just building upon the platform and your aerobic base. And that's that's what you might want to think about. Um, is it possible to split a training session like that so parts of it are in different zones or do our bodies need the entire session to be in one zone only? I already answered that. I hope that makes sense. Um, you could also do um, a 10-mile or a 15-mile run where we do, like where you say, okay, 80% of that 15-mile run was in zone, is going to be in zone two. Um 25% or 20%, or excuse me, that would be more. So let's say 75% of it will be in zone two. Um, 10, 15% of it will be in zone three. And then the last uh, 10% will be in zone four or faster. That can really make it fun as well as you have, you touch on all the zones a little bit, which is totally fine too. You have a lot of benefits there as well. So... A lot of us seem to think just because of the zone two training that we have to that we're we need to so strictly adhere to it. What I mean when I talk about strictly adhering to zone two is that if you have a zone two ride, make it a zone two ride. Doesn't mean that every ride that week has to be zone two. There'll be days with intervals or rolling hills or hill repeats or long climb or flat all-out intervals or sprints or there's many different workouts to incorporate in your week to continue different stimuli but stick to the prescription that you said okay this three-hour ride or this two-hour ride or this five-hour ride I had designated as a zone two ride so I'll stick to that and then on I, I stick to that and so it's just back and forth right understanding those two dynamics All right, as we close out this episode for this week and continue on with my intention of returning to a weekly, more consistent podcast, I wanted to remind everybody on what it is I'm looking to do here, and that is help you all achieve your endurance goals. And as we've talked about a lot with athlete version of ourselves and how that um, seeps into the best version of ourselves, there's also a big understanding that we're doing the best we can. 
And a lot of us struggle and judge ourselves if we're not achieving the goals that we set up high up there. And we're proud of ourselves when we achieve them. Um, that black and white outcome. And I've talked also plenty about goals and why I'm not a fan of just setting something so specific, black and white, um, and more thinking about intentions. But the reminder here is more that we as athletes from a young age have been led to believe that we control outcomes or our intention and our intentions. But as we grow up older, we hopefully recognize that intentions can be overdone. When we become wrapped around the outcome, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, controlling how our goals and intentions come to fruition, that just creates tension, anxiety, and pressure around an unhealthy balance of things we don't actually control. We can control the things we want to achieve, yes, but the how and when becomes very murky and very gray. And I'll explain. So instead, we should set a goal, like many use goals, but I call it an intention, knowing what we want, but then surrendering to the how and the when. We can only do our best. You, you the athlete, can only do your best, given your life, given where you are right now, given family and career and responsibilities, and your own self-history, your own narrative, the own, your own life that you're in. And that intention, that goal, whatever it is, it will happen. You, you can fully believe and vest in that. It's just if you let go of the how and the when, and realizing that that's actually out of our control, it becomes incredibly liberating. Why? Because... Things like an intention and goal, in my opinion, will come to fruition at its right time, in its right way, for you, as it was always meant to be. And that means you're on your path, in your life, with your history and your story. Can you achieve those outcomes, those goals, those intentions, those future ideals? Absolutely. It's just a question of how and when. How much will you sacrifice? How much will you um, need to ignore other things in your life? You don't want to do that in many cases, especially since we chose a hobby, something other we other than um, work and family that we went pro at, right? And so when we think of it, how do we want to go about this? We want to be committed, correct, towards our endurance adventures and goals and outcomes and future desired outcomes? Absolutely. But when it comes to fruition, that is your path. And this is the interesting thing apart about it, right? You can achieve all your goals. But when and how, that is not something to get wrapped up about or in. It will come to fruition in its right time, in its right way. You doing your best, allowing things to manifest as they should, will have you achieving your desired outcomes, with a simple insight at the far end of the journey, your journey. Things happened as they were supposed to, as it was always meant to be. And this is what I'm trying to say. Surrendering to the how and when, and instead focusing on knowing you will, in its way, when it's right, get there to those desired outcomes, 
the knowing that you will is the key. And I will help most of my athletes in knowing that they will. That's what coaching is. Helping you see that you will, that you can. See it in your mind as happened, not as a wish, but instead as happened. And the how and the when we can then gradually have manifest as you do your current available best. And oftentimes I say to athletes that when they achieve that goal, when they achieve that desired outcome, when they have that simple insight at the far end of their journey training, right? Then oftentimes the most successful athletes, the most um, complete athletes, the ones that feel most satisfied with their outcome, always, I would say almost 100% consistently, but definitely in the 90s, all say, you know what, Chris, or whoever their coach is, or if I'm just their friend, or whatever I've read from other athletes in emails and updates, they always seem to say, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. The journey as it was, was perfect, as it was meant to be for me in my timeline, in my personal timeline, and how I needed to go about it, how I needed to learn on my journey and grow on my journey and mature on my journey in order to be the best possible athlete version of myself in the now, who I currently am on my path, achieving my outcomes. And that's what I wanted to leave you guys with this week, reminding you all that there is not necessarily a hurry to achieve all these desired outcomes. Instead, doing your best, letting that athlete version that marinate within you and get better and better, and knowing you're doing your best, you will achieve the future outcome. It's just a question of not spending your energy of on the how and the when. All right. Thanks, you guys, and have a great week.